It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be discussing all the latest Brexit shenanigans. Theresa May's trip to Brussels, Donald Tusk's intemperate remarks, no progress on the backstop, and Jeremy Corbyn's letter to the Prime Minister. I'm delighted to be joined by our Brussels bureau chief in the studio, Alex Barker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, chief political correspondent Jim Picard, and deputy opinion editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the channels to receive it every Saturday morning or leave us a nice review. It was much the same as usual for Theresa May this week. She went back to Brussels to have more talks about everyone's favourite topic, the Irish border backstop. And in return for going to Brussels, she was promised more talks, all the while the clock ticks down towards Article 50 day. But things were made a bit more difficult for the Prime Minister, thanks to comments by Donald Tusk, who in a press conference with the Irish Taoiseach, remarked that there was a special place in hell for those who promoted Brexit without a plan for seeing it through. Q Lots of anger and outrage in Westminster. So, Robert Shrimsley, I feel like there's not a huge amount to say because it's very much business as usual for Theresa May that she's promising to do something about the Irish border backstop, not remove it, but change it. But nothing has really happened in that sense. She went to Brussels. She was told the withdrawal agreement wasn't going to be changed and we would have yet more talks all while the atmosphere was just a little bit cooler than it was last week. Yeah, I mean, I think the meaningful thing that has happened this week is the realisation among conservative moderates that next week is not going to be D-Day. I think people were beginning to think February the 14th, this is the moment we're going to have to tell the Prime Minister that we're not prepared to have no deal on the table any longer. One of the key dynamics that we have to look at is all of the conservative soft Brexiters and moderates who are saying they can't allow a no deal outcome. And many of them are in government and they've got to make a decision about when they jump and say to the prime minister, look, if you're doing this, we're going to have to resign and we're going to have to vote with the opposition to stop it. And of course, they want to delay that as long as possible. Resigning from the cabinet is not a small matter. And I think that they're being pushed backwards. And I think the fundamental thing that's happened this week is that the moment of truth has been pushed back to at least the week of February 26th, possibly later, but at least till then. So, you know, we're all going to have another couple of weeks of nervousness with probably not that much resolved. Because the calculation for those ministers is if they resign too soon and the numbers aren't there in Parliament to stop an ordeal as per the Cooper Bowes amendment, then they've wasted their political capital. But if they wait too late and it's too near the notional Brexit day of March the 29th, then they will be leaving a major government department in a moment that could be a bit of a national crisis. Yeah, I think it's a slightly different calculation. I don't think it's about the numbers. If enough of them go, then the numbers for Cooper Bowles or some other variant are there. I think it's that they actually want to keep trust 
trusting Theresa May. They do see the logic of a strategy in which she takes it up to the wire to force people to vote for her deal. They'd be more comfortable if they knew for sure that it was her strategy. And the problem is none of them feel they can be completely confident about what she actually will do in the final analysis. So that's the worry for them. That's the calculation. I think they are looking for assurances from her that that she is on that side of the argument. Because I think the 39 billion euro question in British politics at the moment is, will Theresa May do a no-deal Brexit or not? Alex Barker, what's the kind of view of that from Brussels? Because Theresa May obviously has said for most of the past two years, no deal is better than a bad deal. We haven't heard that soundbite in a while, but she certainly kept the option of no deal on the table. But I think there is this big question mark in Westminster, will she actually do it? Look, the the first point to make is they clearly look at the timeline and they just don't believe it. I mean, they don't really see the possibility that Mrs May is going to get a meaningful vote through or be able to ratify in that time. So the question really is, when does the extension request come? And it looks like they see the Prime Minister playing for time, running down the clock. They think that's pretty dangerous. It's certainly business are squealing. And for the EU side, there's a degree of risk there as well, because they're having to ramp up their preparations, thinking, what will she do in the final reckoning? Ultimately, I think most of them would think the probability is, even if there is a complete deadlock in Westminster, that there would be a request for a few more months so everyone can prepare. Because I was quite struck that Theresa May used some of her toughest language yet this week about delaying Article 50, saying it will not happen, because there is a contingent within the Cabinet saying that we do need to delay this, and those are the people Robert was talking about who are thinking of resigning to stop a no-deal Brexit. But in the Cabinet meeting this week, my understanding is when they raise their concerns about time running out and there's not enough parliamentary time, most people think to get all the legislation through now, Theresa May responded by saying Brexit will and must happen on March the 29th. I mean, the the only way that Brexit can happen on March 29th is is no deal outcome. And most EU leaders would not want that to happen. They definitely wouldn't want that to happen on March 29th. And I think they would probably see through it because they think ultimately the UK has got a lot more to lose in that scenario. And and just to think back a year, a year ago, we were sitting in this studio discussing, well, if we don't get a clear guarantee on this transition, business will be fleeing, we'll be in a terrible situation. It's pretty, I mean, we're, we're less than 50 days away from this. And I mean, that kind of uncertainty is just phenomenal. I think the point about what Theresa May is saying is, you have to understand there are sort of two Brexits going on here in Britain, leave aside the Brexit that's going on in the rest of the world. There's the parliamentary Brexit and then there's the real Brexit. And Theresa May is focused entirely at the moment on the parliamentary Brexit. And the point is, she has to hang tough to get something like her deal through. She has to make people believe that no deal is a serious possibility. And she has to not have an extension because those are the two circumstances that in the end force all the people who don't like her deal but are terrified of no deal to hold their noses and vote with her. So her strategy is to absolutely not move on those two points if she can possibly avoid it. The problem is because she is running a sort of Janus face strategy of trying to frighten both sides at the same 
same time, neither side is ready to back off. And the problem is there is no ending to this logjam that I can see until one of these sides understands that it's losing. So once no deal is off the table, then all of a sudden the ERG side have to start thinking, OK, maybe Theresa May's deal is the next best option. Or contrarily, if no deal is really, really obviously on the table, then the other side have to say, OK, look, we have to back something like this. So her strategy is completely logical in parliamentary terms. It's just that it's scaring the bejesus out of everybody else. <laughs> yeah. And this is how you do end up with a situation, Alex, where people talk of an accidental no-deal Brexit, where you have these seemingly immovable forces. And if they don't move, then we just roll towards exit day without anything happening. And that's how you fall out of the block. That, that's legally the case, of course. But this is an artificial political deadline. And you can make a request on the 28th of March and get an extension virtually that day. That's why the cliff edge is always going to be a bit artificial in the West. Is it possible for the EU to decide to extend the deadline without a request from Britain? (laughs) I think if you get a good enough lawyer, you could probably come up with anything. But uh, no, it would be pretty hard. As the treaty is written, you have to have a UK request. And I guess there, the, the calculus is, is the pain of the Prime Minister asking for a request of a few months greater than the pain of of crashing out on March 29th. I think that answer is pretty clear. Is there a risk that one of the EU will say no? I think that's... One of the 27 member states. Exactly. I mean, they all have a veto. You could see... I mean, I think that some diplomats are worried that you'll have a kind of flood of mini demands coming in. The Gibraltar question could uh, uh, emerge at the last minute. Our favourite topic, fishing. Fishing. There's all sorts of... I mean, there might be a price for it. But I can't imagine that an EU member state is going to block everything and kick the UK out when it wants a bit more time. So the other thing we, of course, had this week were these remarks from Donald Tusk, which did a fantastic job of winding everybody up in Westminster, which I'm sure that was pretty much designed to do when the the president of the European Council stood up and said at a press conference, seemingly as a obviously a carefully crafted remark, but just thrown away at the end to say there is a special place in hell for the people who promoted Brexit. Um, What was the thing? Without a plan. Without a plan. Yes, not just for all Brexiters, as many Brexiters have interpreted that remark. What was the thinking behind that? I understand that represents this frustration in Brussels towards, you know, the UK and its lack of preparations. But why did he say it then? Well, look, look, Donald Tusk doesn't hold back. I mean, he wears his emotions on his sleeve more than anyone else through this process. And what he reflects, forget the wording and the diplomacy of it. I mean, people are sick and tired of Brexit in Brussels. There is a whole world in the EU, an infrastructure for this kind of union that's dancing to the tune of a kind of slightly (laughs) unhinged debate in Westminster about what's going to happen with Brexit. And they're tired of it. And that impatience hasn't really fed through into policy yet. But as the year goes on, it it will. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I thought about this is I did find it something extraordinary at the sight of all these hard Brexiters who have thought nothing of heaping abuse on Europeans for years, you know, Nazi references and all kinds of other things, suddenly deeply offended that any abuse might be heaped back at them. It's quite true. Given whether or not it was a clever thing for Donald Tusk to do in terms of the UK debate is another question. But the notion of the scale of the umbrage they took is quite out of proportion to the way they behave generally. And the other thing, Robert, was, of course, the Nissan announcement, which 
which, again, much like Mr Tusk's remarks, have been hopped on by either side and people have made out this what they want to, that Nissan decided that it was not going to make its new extra SUV at its Sunderland plant, which in a way has become an emblem for what Brexit means for the country. Will manufacturers stay here? Will those just-in-time supply chains be protected? And Nissan's announcement was as much to do with diesel and demand for cars than it was about Brexit. But Nissan UK did make it quite clear that the uncertainties that Alex was talking about earlier are playing into business decisions and the fact they don't know what's going to happen in seven weeks, never mind seven months, is obviously impacting where they're sending money, resources and people. Yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've summed it up very nicely. And also given the substantial sweeteners that the British government made available to Nissan to build... 60-odd this, million pounds of sweeteners. To, to build this vehicle in Britain, that's quite a big thing to turn their back on and it must be a straw in the wind for how things will work in the event of a no-deal Brexit. It's one of only two, incidentally, two interesting things that happened with Japan this week. The other thing is the statements we're getting out of Tokyo on Friday, which talk about the future trade deals that Japan might strike. And Japan is making it clear that it's not interested in just rolling over the trade treaties that it has with the EU to Britain. Should we leave in a no-deal Brexit? Japan's looking at Britain by itself and thinking, well, we can do a bit better in these negotiations. And so that should also be a really powerful warning signal to countries that, you know, other nations are saying, well, we had to give a bit more than we'd have liked when we're negotiating with the EU. But when we're only negotiating with Britain, we think we can do a bit better. I mean, that's a, we, there are hundreds of these agreements, and it's not even just a no-deal scenario that the UK has to worry about. Even if there is an agreement, a withdrawal treaty um, between the EU and the UK, the UK needs to go around and effectively get the assent of all of these countries to roll over the arrangements that they have at the moment, not basically to a, a bit of a standstill. The irony is they do so by basically going and saying... Brexit's happened, basically we're remaining as an EU member state in legal terms for your purposes. And we had on the FT this week a story about um, trade deals, Robert, which highlighted Liam Fox's Department of International Trade has struggled to get all those rollovers in place. I think the Faroe Islands and Switzerland are the two obvious examples that do have those deals. It does symbolise the sense that even if everything goes to plan, she gets the deal through and it all goes smoothly, we are still leaving this trading block and there are going to be real consequences, which people have sort of forgotten about in this issue of if there's going to be deal or no deal. Well, I mean, I think you make an interesting point, which is that there is an awful lot of work to do, even in benign circumstances, let alone if we have to do everything in 50 days time, even if things go swimmingly well, there's a a ton of administration infrastructure that we have to set up. You have to ask the question, by the way, that we had two departments specially created for the advent of Brexit, and the Department for International Trade, it's not abundantly clear what they have achieved in two years, what they have managed to secure. Dexu has been something of a missing ministry. Its primary task has been taken over by Downing Street in the Cabinet Office, and it's become recently a bit of a no-deal planning ministry. Department for International Trade does not appear to have got an awful lot done in the two years that it's been that its people have been paid to be working. Well, I think there's certainly a good chance of some Whitehall reshuffling on the other side of this, possibly under a new Prime Minister, because I think nearly everybody in the Cabinet agrees there are too many government departments um, trying to share too many resources, particularly over Britain's foreign policy. I I think one can get hung up about the actual ministries we have. We'll merge this ministry, we'll demerge that one. The the fundamental functions have to be done by somebody. The problem is they're not really punching at the moment. And finally, Alex, just where the EU sees 
talks at the moment because as I said Theresa May went to Brussels and had some conversations with Jean-Claude Juncker this week and they both came out with a joint statement saying it was a robust but constructive debate so I'm sure we can read into that that nothing was really achieved and they've agreed to have yet more talks. Has there been any change on the EU side or is it very much still come to us with a specific request and then we'll think about it? At the moment yes I mean they're they're both buying time to some extent with their positions you'll see it move underground for a a bit but I wouldn't raise expectations about what's going to emerge out of there in the next week or two we're basically faced with the same three scenarios that we had in December and and earlier do you end up with something that is a kind of cosmetic add-on and the fundamental point about that is it doesn't contradict the withdrawal agreement very limited in what you can do you can say things like oh well someone described it to me uh, to a, a plan for a unicorn hunt and how you would do that how you'd look for technology on the border exactly what kind of technology you could do i mean that's the kind of what they say embroidery you could add to the agreement there's the second option of really changing it putting a end date in we've seen what the kind of reaction to that has been in brussels they're pretty adamantly against i don't think you'll see any movement on there until you really do get to a point that really looks like a cliff edge if at all and finally the thing that they prefer in brussels which is reworking this political declaration it's non-binding it's it's more about putting what exists in terms of the divorce deal in a different future perspective and you know there the labor position on the customs union is important they would love to do something like that because it's uh, it's cheap for them and they see it as a as a way to kind of find a majority in westminster can i just say we have actually outlawed unicorn hunting in this country now so you can only <laughs> pretend to be can unicorn I, hunting can, we have to do drag hunting now well they did at some point the commission did did put out a no deal notice on the fur industry in the UK and which was of course banned for <laughs> 20 odd years <laughs> uh, but there's a there's a big legislative machine they uh, they're churning them out and the unicorns will, won't won't miss out I'm... <laughs> and just one last quick point there's one suggestion being that those letters that were exchanged between the eu and the uk in the run-up to the meaningful vote which clarify issues about the backstop which brexiter said meant nothing others said well actually there is some interesting legal basis here there's been talk of taking those letters and putting them into the withdrawal agreements they would have binding force would that really do anything well that that's the first option. I mean, that's what they did for Wallonia when they had issues with the Canada trade agreement. They have an interpretive text. It's it's judiciable in that it's got some kind of legal standing. But fundamentally, it didn't contradict the Canada agreement. And those letters actually take out a lot of the language in the withdrawal treaty, in what EU leaders have already said, making that legally binding. Yeah, fine. I mean, because it mirrors much of what's in there. You're listening to FT Politics from the Financial Times. Back at home, the Labour Party made a bold move on Brexit. Jeremy Corbyn sent a rather detailed letter to Theresa May outlining the exact circumstances he would support her Brexit deal if it was changed, namely joining a permanent customs union, almost single market membership and much closer alignment on rules and regulations. It created something of a headache for the Prime Minister but has also resulted in yet more splits and arguments amongst the Parliamentary Labour Party. 
So, Jim Picard, up until now, the Labour Party's had its infamous six tasks for Brexit, which were once described by a word we won't say on this podcast by someone in the Labour front bench, because these tests were really an obfuscation exercise, a way of Labour having a Brexit position that would keep its very fragile voting coalition together. And these tests were never going to be met. Nobody expected them to be reached, not least because one of them was to have the exact same benefits of the single market while being outside of the single market. Jeremy Corbyn changed that this week with his letter, which outlined a landing zone for a Brexit deal not a million miles away from where Theresa May's deal is. What was the thinking behind that letter and what was Mr Corbyn trying to do with it? So the first thing I I would say argumentatively is that it is a million miles away from where the Prime Minister is, simply because although elements of this offer are quite reasonable and the Prime Minister can meet them quite easily, there is still this demand for the Permanent Customs Union, which we should remind listeners, is something that the Tory Eurosceptics absolutely hate because it would prevent Britain having an independent trade policy. And there are scores of Tory MPs making private noises about a split to rival the Corn Laws in the 19th century, should she go ahead with that. And Jeremy Corbyn knows that. When he's putting this forward, it all sounds very positive and collegiate and wanting to work in a cross-party kind of way. But they do know that this demand for customs union is not something that May can deliberately countenance. What I think is happening, though, is that the mood music on this approach is really, really interesting because it shows how Corbyn does want Brexit to happen and doesn't really, in his heart of hearts, want a second referendum at all, unlike a lot of his members and a lot of his MPs. I agree with you on that it's not exactly where Mrs May's deal is, but if we remember the Chequers plan, which she signed up to, is very close to having a permanent customs union. The way that it would work in practice would not be too different. Now, yes, it would allow Britain to have a slightly more independent trade policy, but it's a way of backing a customs union without having a customs union, because as you said, the Eurosceptic MPs would never go along with that, because for so many of those in the Conservative Party who want Brexit to strike free trade deals, and you obviously can't have that if you're in Inside the customs union. But the sort of background to this, Jim, is that this is all about this tension between Labour MPs who are broadly remain supporting, although some of them don't want a second referendum, Jeremy Corbyn, who is suspected to be a Brexiter in his heart, the trade unions and the Labour voting within the country. Mr Corbyn's trying to walk several tightropes at the same time between all these coalitions. And there's a sense at some point he's going to have to choose or does he? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's a lifelong Eurosceptic. He really doesn't want a second referendum. His team of staff don't want a second referendum. If you go through the shadow cabinet, it's hard to work out more than two or three of them that want a rerun of 2016. And yet he's really aware of this increasing anger from a lot of the membership of the Labour Party. I should say that doesn't mean that the membership's fallen out of love with Mr Corbyn, but they are feeling increasingly torn between this man that they sort of seen as a, a hero since he became leader and where he is in Europe, which is not where they are. And there was that very striking research by the TSSA union who they helped create Corbyn mania. They were the first union to back him back in 2015. They provided office space for his leadership campaign. And they have always been more Europhile than a lot of the other unions. But they produced this research this week, basically saying that if he supports Brexit or allows Brexit to happen under his watch, you could see uh, it becoming like a kind of tuition fees moment that Nick Clegg had, or like the Iraq war moment that Tony Blair had. What I think is happening, where Corbyn basically is, is he wants Brexit to go through, but it not to have his fingerprints and his blood nowhere near it at all. 
And that's why we've seen Len McCluskey, who's the United General Secretary, you know, being quite positive about this idea that there could be concessions the government could give on workers' rights and things like that. And McCluskey saying to people, we've got to go through with Brexit, it may not be the end of the world, that kind of thing. And that puts him at odds with the general secretaries of some other unions, not just the TSSA, also the GMB, which is much bigger, and some other unions who want a second referendum. So all this is playing out. And what we're seeing here and what that approach in the letter shows is Corbyn really does somehow want to get this through but not to own it that's i think absolutely what i thought when i saw this letter miranda green is that corbyn wants to see brexit through i think we can absolutely say that and it looks increasingly unlikely he's ever going to sanction some kind of second referendum we've heard a lot of disappointed noises from labor and from chukuramana from owen smith lots of the people's vote campaign have really come to terms with the fact that yes there was this infamous labor conference motion from last year that said we will keep the option of another referendum on the table but mr corbyn is still a long way from actually having that so he's putting this letter down to really say i want brexit to happen but he doesn't really expect mrs may to suddenly jump on his deal either no but as jim has said it's a win-win for him because with this initiative he gets to look as if he's being constructive he gets to placate those leave-leaning voters who may have become suspicious that the Labour Party is a kind of stop Brexit vehicle or heading in that direction. He provides this environment in which it's okay for, we think, around 60 Labour MPs now to actually back May's deal without repercussions and feeling that even if their leadership is not quite with them and is not quite endorsing the deal, that's where the sort of consensus of opinion across the two sides of the House of Commons now is. So that's really, really crucial because it makes it much more likely that the deal will actually find a way through. But also, it isn't just a kind of red unicorn substituted for a blue unicorn. If it had been proposed several months ago, it might actually be a genuine compromise way through. And our trade expert, Alan Beatty, has written this this week. You know, this is actually a relatively sensible proposal. Whether it has time to go anywhere, the substance of it, since we're staring at the last sort of 10 minutes before the bomb explodes, probably not. But you see, he gets to look as if he's doing something and taking action. But again, probably not taking responsibility for Brexit because the Labour leadership would much rather that Brexit appeared to be a kind of Conservative-inspired natural disaster over which they have no power rather than a political act that they have been party to. Because, Jim, there is this sense, you know, you've done a lot of reporting on Labour MPs who may or may not back Mrs May deal. They might not vote for it, but they could abstain when we come to the crunch point five minutes before midnight. And the number that I think you've talked about was 30 to 40. And Lisa Nandy, who's one of the MPs who is very much toying with backing the Prime Minister, has said that number might be even higher. But my understanding is that those Labour MPs are very worried about deselections if they do that, that momentum, the grassroots outrides for Jeremy Corbyn. And if they see Labour MPs letting Theresa May's Brexit or an evil Tory Brexit, as they may characterise it, go through, they will come for them in the deselection case. But Mr Corbyn seems to be presenting some cover with his comrade Len McCluskey. Yeah, exactly. If you look at the language that the, the leadership uses, and if you listen to John McDonnell on the radio this morning, he seems to be kind of implying, you know, well, some MPs are going to have to sort of respect local sentiment on the ground. It feels like they're preparing the ground not for a situation where Labour formally backs May's deal or that any of the unions back May's deal, but there's a sort of vibe in the air where those MPs who go ahead and abstain or back it don't get punished by the whips. We obviously saw that last week in the vote where eight shadow ministers 
didn't go along with the whip on the Cooper Amendment and there was no punishment whatsoever. But as you say, Seb, that doesn't mean that further down the line, those naughty left-wing activists from Momentum or wherever come back and deselect the MPs. So they are right to be suspicious of whether Lenin, the leadership's sort of covert nod and a wink, is enough to protect them in the future. A couple of other points just to make quickly. The other sort of interesting Machiavellian idea out there is that by pushing the customs union compromise which the Eurosceptics can't stomach. And the Tory Eurosceptics here. The Tory Eurosceptics can't stomach. And Corbyn putting that up and May taking it seriously. One thing this might do is it might act as a stick to get the ERG and the Eurosceptics in line to back May's deal, which would also suit Jeremy Corbyn. Whether he's thinking in those kind of three-dimensional chess ways, I'm not sure. The other thing just to pick up the point about whether the permanent customs union is i mean it's obviously a reasonable plan there are some issues with technically how it would work because the way that barry gardner the shadow trade secretary has talked about this under this permanent customs union idea of labor you'd have a situation where we'd still be able to do trade deals but we'd have a sort of 50 50 debate with the eu 27 and we'd come to trade deals together i mean firstly why would they agree to that and secondly jeremy corbyn's labor is so anti-trade deals in the first place it's very hard to see that working in practice. But these are just details. They are details. But also, can we not just share a moment of mutual relief that we're listening to Barry Gardner discussing something that's a bit more substantive than the endless details of the sequencing of Labour's famous conference motion in September of when they asked for a general election, when they asked for a second referendum, because I couldn't stand any more of that. And I actually think that Labour's being very clever with this new initiative because I think they realise they couldn't stick to that line anymore. Well, they are being very clever, but that is causing them some problems within their party, Miranda, because, of course, as I said, there's a lot of disappointed MPs about this because if you're in the camp of Sir Keir Starmer, the Brexit secretary, you're doing everything you can to get to that point where there is no option but to back a second referendum. So the first stage in that infamous conference motion was <laughs> to push for a general election. They've tried and failed. Now, I think people in Corbyn's office have said, oh, we can try again, but people like Kira saying, well, actually, we have tried and that hasn't worked. Therefore, we need to move on to phase two. But the way that Corbyn has acted this week and the language from the leader's office does suggest that we're not there yet. So we have naturally had more talks of a split away. And this is the infamous new centrist party that's going to emerge to fill, if not the voting vacuum, but the intellectual vacuum that exists around the centre left and maybe a bit of the centre right of British politics here. And so Owen Smith, who challenged Jeremy Corbyn for the leadership back in those halcyon days of the summer of 2016 said he was actively considering it and we've then also seen Luciana Berger who is MP in Liverpool who's been very critical of Jeremy Corbyn not just over Brexit but also his handling of the anti-Semitism issue she's now faced a no confidence motion in her constituency which has all turned pretty nasty so once again Westminster is a flutter is something about to break well so what you've got is you've got lots of individual local circumstances but if they start to look like a pattern then it's kind of action in an area where we've expected action for a long time but it's never really come to pass I mean Luciana Berger obviously a Jewish MP who's been on the receiving end of horrendous abuse and harassment so that's sort of sui generis in a way but she is also of that sort of moderate wing of the party that gets targeted by momentum so it's really interesting this because you guys were talking slightly earlier about those MPs who might feel liberated to vote for May's Brexit deal who could then face 
a backlash from the pro-Remain membership. But then you've got this other group of MPs who are very, very strongly people's vote Remainers, who also, because they're the kind of seen as the rump Blairites, they're also on the receiving end of targeted momentum-type takeovers of their local party. So I think it was only last week that the Streatham Labour Party, which is Chukramuna's seat, was very dramatic scenes there where they sort of took over and that could be the first move towards trying to deselect Chuka, who's seen as a kind of potential leader of some sort of breakaway group. I mean, new parties really, really don't succeed easily under our system. First past the post makes it's very difficult to succeed. Vince Cable, who's been sort of touring the country on his own kind of one-man Romani campaign, has started to talk about a few Tory MPs. You could see Anna Soubry, who looks very isolated now that some of her former allies like Nikki Morgan are trying to keep the Tory party together. What does Anna Soubry do next, for example? So there are characters hanging around who need a new home. Whether a new home can be found for them or whether they sort of break away and become a kind of caucus of independent, remainy, moderate MPs looking for a new party that never really surfaces. I think that might be the most likely outcome. But I think it is becoming more interesting again. And I think also we took our eye off Labour deselections for a long time, but it's back on the agenda. Do you think there's a point there, Jim, that it's not actually going to be this big bang moment like when the SDP formed in that in the early 80s, where here is a new party with a group of big MPs, where in fact it might just be bit by bit people drift away, they get deselected and sit as independents or a couple break away. And before you know it, the face of the Labour Party has just sort of changed quite a lot by the next election. I think the problem with that scenario is that the MPs who are now seen as independents who used to be Labour... Frank Field, John Woodcock. Yeah, I mean, some of them, there's a slight shadow over them. You know, there were accusations about John Woodcock, which I'm not sure where they've got to, so I won't go into them. And, you know, Frank has always been quite a maverick. It it doesn't feel like a new sort of moment in politics, a sort of new movement beginning. So I think if that keeps happening, people just sort of get into trouble and, and break away or they get deselected and break away. That's not enough to start a new party. I think you do need people in a concerted way to decide the moment has come. This is it. Start a new party. And what we didn't talk about earlier is that the Lib Dems in theory occupy that pro-EU centrist space, but they've been so damaged. When you talk to normal members of the public, they've been so damaged by their association with the Tories during the coalition years that it feels like they are not the vehicle to do this. It would take some pretty brave people. They would need access to money and they would need to all move at the same time. And you've seen a lot of squabbling. Do you remember there was that Simon Franks trying to United for change. And that didn't go so well. No, but it's really interesting. I completely agree with you, Jim. But I think what the one thing they do seem to have is backers with money. I don't think that's their issue. You know, their issue is actually what is your coherent platform? Do any of you guys who've splintered off from two different bits of politics actually share enough in common to form a new party and who would be your leader? They do not have a leader. Because I think there is when you saw the campaigners who were trying to get the People's Vote Amendment through Parliament and they withdrew it a couple of weeks ago because they didn't have the numbers there. You know, if you take Sarah Wollaston, Anna Subri, Chukumana, they obviously all have one big thing in common, which is they want to stop Brexit. But once you go beyond that, they're actually, I think, very different people and they represent seats in very different parts of the country. And the question is, we are less than 50 days from leaving the EU now. Once that moment has passed, 
past, assuming it happens at the end of March. What happens to that sentiment? Do they become the rejoiners party? I imagine campaigners like Andrew Adonis will go straight into arguing we need to now rejoin the EU and everything that goes in there. But for all of them, it's because there is a movement. It's the FBPE movement. It's not necessarily mm. a social democrat movement. But if, if one steps back and asks the question of are there loads of remaining Tories who are unhappy with Brexit and are there loads of former Labour supporters who are unhappy with Corbynism, the answer is there is quite a big pool of people out there. And secondly, we like to sort of think that politics is static because we've had Labour and Conservatives dominating everything for the past 80 years or whatever it is. But let's not forget you know, the Whigs were a powerful force in British politics and no longer exist. The Liberals came and went. The Tories split back in the 1860s. So... We as political commentators shouldn't be surprised if something breaches and changes. It's just very hard to predict how and when that's going to happen. Well, absolutely. And also, just to mention that on the Tory side, there's also this extraordinary phenomenon of Nick Bowles, who's one of the prime movers on the Tory side to make some sort of Brexit compromise, is also facing deselection by his local Conservative Party. So there's a lot to keep your eye on. Well, with that look backwards and in the present, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Jim, Robert, Alex and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked this podcast and would like to see more FT journalism, then you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.